the secular worldview maintains there is no communication between the supernatural realm and the natural realm. The world was not created by a personal maker who is separate from his creation. There are no miracles. There is no such thing as divine revelation by which God communicates His will to man. And there is no such thing as answered prayer. The supernatural realm, the natural realm, never interact. If there even is a supernatural realm, which we cannot know, it is an impenetrable there is an impenetrable wall which separates us from it. The divine realm never penetrates the natural realm. Ever. Well, we have gathered this Lord's Day to say precisely the opposite. We gather to celebrate the reality that the supernatural realm does penetrate the natural realm on occasion. We believe that such divine penetrations are rare. We are not as an assembly uh, linked with those who believe that God appears to them every day and talks to them over their cereal bowl all the time. We believe this is rare. God does not often throw back the veil and reveal to us His will and His presence. Most generations in the history of mankind, most generations, I believe, have passed without witnessing a miracle or receiving divine revelation. But from time to perfect time, God does penetrate our realm. At key moments in His redemptive plan, God invades our world to express His nature and His will. Centuries before the reign of the Roman Emperor Augustus Caesar, God penetrated this world. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said prophetically, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Sometime later in 538 B.C., God told the prophet Daniel that an imperial edict would be issued permitting the Jews to return from Babylon to Palestine. 483 years later, God said, Messiah would present himself as the king of Israel April 6th, A.D. 32. God penetrated the natural realm when He issued that precise prophecy. And seven centuries prior to the events of Luke chapter 1, God told the prophet Micah that this Messiah would come from the small village of Bethlehem in Judea. For centuries now, these prophecies had pointed the way periodically piercing the natural realm, God telling us what will come in the future. He can only do that because He knows the script. He's written it already. He knows what is coming. So for centuries, these prophecies are there, pointing the way. But now, finally, the time had come for God to penetrate the natural realm in an absolutely unique and awesome manner. This divine invasion began when the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary so that the second person of the triune Godhead was conceived in her womb. And as we have considered in past weeks, Mary then visited Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
She received great encouragement and confirmation that she was, in fact, going to bear the Messiah. Then Elizabeth bears John, Jesus' forerunner, and Mary returns home to Nazareth three months pregnant. If you'll make your way to Luke chapter 2, let me tell you just a little bit, as we know and has, as Pastor Pratt read earlier, what Luke does not tell us. It is probably after Mary returns from her visit to Zechariah and Elizabeth that she informs, or in some way it is revealed to Joseph, that Mary is with child. Now Joseph knows that he is not the father. That's all that he really knows. He draws the only conclusion a man can draw, and that is that Mary is pregnant by another man. Remember, they are married in this betrothal period. They have not been together physically, as custom would have it, but they are married. And so Joseph decides to do to take one of two routes, and that is to divorce Mary in a way that shields her from as much public shame as possible. He will put her away privately rather than shaming her publicly, as was his right in that culture and time. But somewhere in all of this, as Joseph consternates over what to do, an angel appears to him and says, Joseph, let me explain what has happened to Mary. Take her as your wife. She is pregnant with the Messiah. The Holy Spirit has overshadowed her, and there is a child in her womb that has come from heaven above. I'm sure Joseph's faith was stretched to the ultimate breaking point. But he takes Mary as his wife. And what is so amazing to us as we look back at this time, among other things, is that they are still living in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is a long ways from Bethlehem, and Mary is getting closer and closer to full term. Now, we we should understand, I think, from these Old Testament prophecies that they are a bit murky to the people who first read them. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son did not necessarily strike everyone as, oh, that's Jesus coming in the manger. They did not perceive it in that way. When Micah says that this one will come out of Bethlehem, it is not demanding that he would be born there. However, Jesus somehow needs to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and it needs to be said of him that he comes out of Bethlehem. How is that going to be said of a young boy who lives in Nazareth? Well, it is as instructive as it is intriguing to see just how they end up in Bethlehem. And that is the first part of this section, starting Luke chapter 2, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. We notice, first of all, the journey to Bethlehem, which is so significant to the entire account. Verse 1 of chapter 2, the Gospel of Luke. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. We notice here Luke's careful pinpointing of the date. A census decreed by the first emperor of Rome, Augustus Caesar, who ruled alone from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. This was the first of at least two enrollments taken while Quirinius was governing Syria, with jurisdiction over Judea, which was part of the Syrian province of the Roman Empire. The rule of these men in this particular account of this enrollment are all matters of public record. 
Luke is very clearly not fabricating a story, but he is working overtime to fix this story precisely at its date in history. This is as good as ancient accounting can do. Remember, the A.D., the B.C., the way that we uh, date, is not, that doesn't come for many years later. So this is as precise as Luke can be. From our standpoint, it is 5 B.C., or 4 B.C., late 5 B.C. or early 4 B.C., depending on where Christ's birth lands exactly, which we cannot entirely know. But each person is to be registered in his own town. We do not know precisely how one city was determined. Obviously, it's not necessarily your place of residence. Because Joseph is in Nazareth, it would have been a lot more convenient for him to register there at Nazareth. More on that in a moment, but I'd like us to consider for, for at this point the providence of God. We see here a very unique and helpful picture of how providence works. We know from the prophet Micah seven centuries earlier that Messiah will come out of Bethlehem. What we don't know is how he's going to get there. God knows, and he works through the means of secular pagan dictators to get the family of Jesus to Bethlehem in this unique way. We don't see Joseph anxiously twisting his hands, all worried about how he's going to get to Bethlehem now that his wife is bearing the Messiah. We don't see him consternating over that, making a beeline for the town. Joseph simply goes about his business and he waits on the timing of God and he does what is wise and right, one day at a time. When there's revelation from God, he takes Mary as his wife. When there is no revelation of God, he stays where he is. But then comes this decree from Augustus Caesar. You will go to your hometown, however that was determined, and you will register there. Depending on the route that was taken, this journey could have taken as long as four days and perhaps as long as 90 miles. This was no simple trip for them. We notice in verse 4, that Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Bethlehem is David's city, the town where his grandfather and father were born, the town where David was born, where he shepherded the sheep where he was anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. Joseph travels to Bethlehem as the text says here because, here's the purpose for the journey, he belonged to the house and the line of David. What irony is in this? Joseph is in the kingly line of Israel. Think about this. Who's ruling in Israel? In Israel, Augustus Caesar is king, and under him is Quirinius, the governor of the region, and under him is Herod, the utterly depraved so-called king of the Jews. Joseph does not live in Jerusalem and hold an important governmental post. Joseph is the offspring of David, but he is simply a poor, humble carpenter trudging toward Bethlehem to register his head with the pagan authorities of Rome. That's the human perspective. But we realize from the divine perspective that Joseph makes this trip not because Caesar wills it, but because the King of Heaven wills it in his sovereign 
workings. The king who turns the heart of Augustus and who turns the heart of Quirinius and who turns the heart of Herod wherever he wants. Though utterly powerless against Rome, Joseph and Mary are not the victims. They are servants of the sovereign Lord of heaven who is fulfilling his promise through the prophet Micah out of Bethlehem. This son will come. You know, it's really no different for you and me in this very big world in which we live. A world that is run by powerful people and carried along by powerful forces, too great, it seems, at times to resist. Let's remember, we're the small people. We're the peons. We're the people with that weird view of life and who don't count for much in this big world. Let's never forget who runs this universe. God is working step by step, even through the foolish decisions and the powerful schemes of a fallen world to accomplish His purposes through His people. That's what He's always been doing. And that's what He's doing in your life and mine right now. In the midst of sin, in the midst of failure, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of these powerful forces, God is sovereign and He works. And He moves Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Because nothing happens without the direction of God for His glory and the ultimate good of His people. Absolutely nothing. And so, Joseph and Mary journey to Bethlehem. We learn in verse 5 that she is with Him. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to Him and was expecting a child. Joseph and Mary are betrothed. As we've said often, according to custom, they've not had sexual relationships yet, but they are considered husband and wife. In this state of marriage, it is highly unlikely that they traveled alone. The decree that forces Joseph to go to Bethlehem is a decree that all very possibly would have hit others of his relatives, and they also would be traveling to Bethlehem with him. We don't know that, but it's quite unlikely that they traveled alone at any rate under any circumstance. But for her part, the journey is complicated by the fact that Mary is with child. The King James reads that she is great with child, which is really an interpretive translation. The Greek word just means pregnant. We don't know how far along she is. That's not indicated to us here. It's not important. The important point is that she conveys the Son of God to Bethlehem in her womb. The scene... Switches now at verse 6 to Bethlehem itself. While they were there. Let's stop on that for just a moment. While they were there, while they were in Bethlehem. Now tradition has taught us some things. Whether we know it or not, it's taught us to conceive of Mary suffering severe labor pains while she rides into town in the middle of the night on a donkey led by Joseph who desperately beats on the door of the inn, finds no room, and the baby is born in a stable. But as our translation indicates, it's very likely that Joseph and Mary stayed in Bethlehem for some time before the child was born, probably living there with relatives. They would certainly have had connections, as this is the town of Joseph. All the text says is that while they were there, that is, while they were in Bethlehem, and make sure to hear the strains of Micah's prophecy here, verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. This is how he will come out of Bethlehem. This will forever be the hometown of Messiah, Jesus. 
while they were there, the time comes for her to give birth to a son. In verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Now, I, I don't know how we can read this text other than to say that that phrase, firstborn, is meaningless unless Mary had other children. Which both Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 6 tell us very explicitly that she did, that she had other children. Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. She did not live in lifelong celibacy as the Roman church falsely insists. She did, however, give birth here to the sinless Messiah, the second person of the Godhead. The time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Verse 7, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. She wrapped him in cloths. The custom was to wrap or swaddle from the verb to swathe, the swaddling clothes, to wrap the baby in these long strips of cloth that would provide a diaper, it would provide security, it would provide protection, it would provide warmth on what we would imagine is, a, is the cool of the night. She lays this baby in a manger, a simple cattle trough, probably carved out of stone as would have been typical, a simple box from which the cattle ate. Now there's no room for them in the inn. Let me just say very briefly here, and there's an awful lot that can go into this, but it is remotely possible that there was a structure built in Bethlehem to house travelers. Although many deny a town of the size of Bethlehem would have had one. If it did, such an inn would have offered a crude, unfinished, stall-like room with only three walls. You could just sort of take a, a, a long strip motel today, put it in a square, and tear off the front wall of all of the rooms. And in the center section there was where they would ha- have the animals that would feed there in the middle of that courtyard. There was All that the innkeeper had to do was provide fodder for the animals and a fireplace for people to cook the food on that they brought themselves. There were no beds, desks, and no room service whatsoever. They just were in these different stalls and would lay down there on the ground for the night as they travel. Because if you're traveling and you don't know anybody in the town, you're really a nobody. So they were very crude, these um, ancient motels. But the word that Luke uses here is not the common Greek word that's used for such a setting. And it is, as I mentioned, very doubtful that Bethlehem in such a small town would have had such a place. The word Luke uses here is found only one other time in the writings of Luke, and that is in 22.11, where Jesus says, find the upper room. The upper room, the word can often be translated the guest room. Remember these box-type houses, just a simple square house, and on top was a smaller square, an upper room, usually just an open room, and would be used for guests or for various reasons uh, throughout, for whatever the purposes were that were needed. Jesus used it for the last meal with his disciples. And it's pro- more probable that that's the room that is being spoken of here. In other words, Joseph and Mary are living in Bethlehem with relatives, and there is not sufficient room now, perhaps others have come along to register, there's not sufficient room there in that inn, in that guest room, in order for Mary to give birth. And so she must find, obviously here, some type of uh, cattle stall of some sort. Now, whatever the case, it's clear that we are here in an evening hour. 
as the guest room is occupied. There's also fairly strong evidence that the cattle pen itself was located in a cave. This is traditional evidence. We cannot prove this, but it's a very persistent tradition, and there's a lot to it I won't go into, but it does seem that this cattle stall was actually a cave, perhaps one that was carved out of the side of a cliff, as was very common. Remember, almost everything, and certainly all of the buildings, are made out of stone in this setting. And what they would do then is quarry into the side of a cliff, and as they quarried out rock to build numerous houses, they would use that space. It might be used if it was a small cavity for a grave. It might be used if it was a larger cavity for the housing of animals or the even sleeping of strangers or something of the like. And that seems to be the consistent testimony of the early church as to where Jesus was born in, in a cave of, of one sort or the other. Wherever it was located, however it was constructed, the cattle stall has to be one of the humblest places on earth to give birth. In truth, such mystery really defies description. And we hear it seasonally year after year, but let's think about it again here in June. Can we do this in June? Is this even legal to be meeting like this? We should be shut down by the authorities, the church police, to talk about such things in June. But let's think about it in June. Maybe we think about it just a little bit differently. This defies description. The voice of the one who pierced the darkness with let there be light now pierces the cool night air with an infant's wail. The one who gave life to the universe and manna to Israel draws his sustenance from the breast of a peasant girl. The Ancient of Days is wearing a diaper. The Lord of Heaven lays aside His regal robe of light to be born on the floor of a cattle stall. And He who never slumbers or sleeps now does. There in the manger lies the Son of God. That is a mystery. That is a concept that we will never fully understand. We'll never plumb the depths. There In that trough lies the Son of God. Amidst the stench of manure and hay and human blood rests the Savior of the world. Amidst the mice and cobwebs and cattle, a weary mother rests her head and a bleary-eyed father ponders the future. And this long night has only just begun. Heaven rejoices. The Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. And here's the theme that I'd like to drive home today. The divine realm has penetrated the world of sinners. And all right on schedule. But as I mentioned, the night is not done. The spiritual realm has one more plan for penetrating this natural realm. One more display of glory. So while Jesus is being born in a cattle stall in Bethlehem, shepherds are out in the nearby fields keeping night vigil over their sheep. In time historically, it is after the birth of Christ that we enter into this next scene at verse 8, angels announcing Christ's birth. Verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The angels, an angel reveals here the news to the shepherds. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. 
They're sleeping out under the stars in a field, as shepherds did, and in the very region and perhaps in one of the very fields where David shepherded his own sheep so long ago. They're minding their business, unsuspecting of the history-altering event which is transpiring that night in the town of Bethlehem. So while they're in the field, verse 9, this, shepherd, or this angel rather appears to them suddenly, unexpectedly, in a split second, the supernatural realm again penetrates the, divine, or the natural. A glorious light wrapped the angel in a mantle of splendor. As Edersheim says, heaven and earth seemed to mingle. I love that phrase. Heaven and earth seemed to mingle for a moment. A glorious light. As could only be expected, the shepherds, of course, are utterly terrified. But the messenger of God speaks words of grace. Verse 10, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. God wants the birth of His Son to be viewed in a certain way. He has a specific message with a specific attitude in mind. What is it? The angel may have commanded the shepherds to fall down on their faces in fear. And it would have been very appropriate, wouldn't it? I want you to conceive what I have to tell you fearfully. Fall on your faces. He could have called them to a hushed reverence or to weep as they considered the mission this son had come to complete. But what does the angel say? It is time to rejoice. It is time to celebrate with intense joy. This is an amazing message from heaven's shores. It's on a prominent hill to the southeast of Bethlehem. There was the shadow cast of a large castle. Herod's castle. The same Herod who would commit unspeakable atrocities trying to kill this very baby. Was this not a night to shudder in fear in the ominous shadow of that structure? No, it was not time to fear, said the angels. It is likely that the sheep and these shepherds that were watch, that they were watching were it is likely that the sheep, these shepherds were watching. I just about killed the shepherds, but it's likely that the sheep that these shepherds are watching were dedicated for offering at the temple in Jerusalem. There are a number of statements made along those lines that any sheep would probably be dedicated that way if being shepherded here in this area. And there's a lot of intrigue that goes into that. But whatever the case, they are shepherding sheep. Was this not a night to weep? The Lamb of God had been born. This son was to become the sacrificial lamb of God. No, says the angel, it's not a time to weep. It's not a time to fear Rome's heavy hand. It's not a time to weep the destiny of this baby. It is time to sing. It's time to rejoice. It's time to exalt These angels aren't coming with some cockamamie message all of a sudden. They are bringing the joys of heaven to earth. And they are saying, I do not bring you a message of fear. Don't be afraid. I bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Verse 11, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. 
He is Christ the Lord. There will be a day when you will fear. There will be a day when you certainly will weep. But this is a time to rejoice. This is a time to take what will be in heaven and to bring it down here tonight and to rejoice in the Savior who has been born. In the town of David, that fits again Micah's prophecy, this regal lineage of this boy, a Savior he is called. Jesus was not made a Savior by his followers after he died. Jesus was born the Savior. That was his mission, to save his people from their sin. He is referred to here as Christ the Lord. No Jew in that day could ever mistake this appellation. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. Remember Daniel's prophecy, Daniel chapter 9. April 6, 32 A.D., this Anointed One will present himself as King of Israel. This Anointed One. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed. He has come. This is the Lord. The long-awaited Messiah is here. Verse 12. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now that took a little reworking in the old noggin, I can tell you that, on the part of these shepherds. Come again. He is going to be, he is the Messiah, the King of heaven and earth. And right now, he's in a cattle stall. You'll find him there in a manger. In a manger. Now maybe the angel said more, we don't know, but somehow they know what he's talking about and they go. Some have suggested that it was their manger their cattle stall. I don't know, but at any rate, they know where to go. And so, in the night, they make their way to the city of Bethlehem to find this king born in such humble circumstances. The angel has made his announcement, and now a host of angels praise the Lord, beginning at verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. The supernatural realm communicating with the natural realm exactly what is going on in the supernatural realm. There is glory to God in the highest, that is in heaven, high and lifted up. There is praise going forward in the grand loft of the celestial shore right now. I think the angels are just expressing again the attitude of heaven at that moment. Heaven's halls are ringing with joy and gladness and the angels merely transmit the joy in that very attitude. They are sent to make known the mind of God. In heaven there is glory. On earth, verse 13, peace to men on whom His favor rests. To men on whom his favor rests. It's really a very good translation, I think, with all things considered. God's peace does not rest on all. It rests on those whom he pleases to favor. The emphasis here is not on man. The emphasis here is on God. The angel addresses not those who choose God. He addresses here those whom God chooses in his sovereign mercy. Why? Why is it this way? Why is it those on whom God's favor rests? So that as Paul said to the Ephesians, in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And so it is by grace 
that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Again, the sovereign hand of God is seen in this grace. Shepherds witness Christ's birth. Now we come to that section, verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. This is faith, isn't it? Let's see this thing that has happened. They believe it, that the Lord has told us about. You see the equation of the angels' message with the Lord. They understand what the angels are saying is what God wanted had to be said. God has spoken to them and they know it. So having believed the divine revelation announced by the angels, the shepherds hurry up one of the terrace slopes that led to the elevated town of Bethlehem, picking their way in the dark. Can you imagine the shock to Joseph and Mary? Verse 16, So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Can you imagine their surprise as a group of rugged shepherds in the middle of the night stick their dirty faces in the door and ask, hey, is there a newborn here? Amazing. These were no wise men. In fact, there were no wise men that ever came to this cave that night. No wealthy visitors to drop off their gifts for the king. Just simple shepherds obediently confirming the word of God as they peered into the Son's face. Having seen the newborn Messiah, the shepherds apparently do not return immediately to their flocks. But as we notice in verse 17, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child Perhaps it was now early morning, the streets of Bethlehem filling with those who are traveling and walking and doing business. And the shepherds seemed to respond in the spirit of Peter and John here, some years later, who said, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. How could you? This is the spirit of all of Christ's witnesses. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Like the shepherds, we too have received a divine message. Like them, we have been changed by that divine message, those of us who know Him as Savior. And like them, what else can we do but proclaim this message to a fallen and lost world? Witness is not a simple matter of screwing up your courage in fulfillment of an obligation. Witness is to be the natural outflow of a heart that is filled with awe in the light of God's power and grace. We notice the response to these shepherds' message and what a tremendous privilege was theirs to carry that unique story. God putting it in the hands, not of prophets, not of some recognized Pharisee or great religious leader, not even in the hands of the wise men who came with their wealth and their gifts and their knowledge. He puts this message in the mouth of simple shepherds who do the job and communicate it. And what is the response? Verse 18, all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The people are amazed. 
just as they were amazed at the birth of John and the circumstances there. Verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. We see the response of the people. We see the response of Mary. She did not book an agent. She did not hold a press conference. She did not write a book or run around Palestine holding seminars of all that I have seen and heard. What did Mary do? She meditated. She hasn't got this all figured out yet. And rather than making merchandise off of what has happened in her life, she simply meditates. She contemplates. She put the words of the shepherds together with the words of Elizabeth and the words of the angel to her and the words of the angel to Joseph, and she puts it all together and she meditates. She stores these events in her heart and she lets them germinate. She had no full realization of who this boy was yet, but she continued to carefully contemplate the mystery of it all. And we would probably be very right to assume that she is the major source of this information that we have read. She was there. The shepherds themselves respond, verse 20, they returned, apparently I would assume returning to their flocks. They returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. They were, as one author puts it, new men going back to the same old job. They lifted psalms of praise to God. And what precisely did they exalt in? God's word proved true. This is a way that Luke brings several accounts, several pictures or pericopes to end with this very idea that God did what he said he would do. Just as they had been told. God is writing the script And His people, His people who are filled with joy are those who come to realize that truth, that He writes the script. And it is for our joy and for His glory that He does so. They go back rejoicing. They go back glorying in the name of God who keeps His word. It is not often in the history of this world that we read something like this. This is unique. A time when God penetrates our realm. But from time to time, He does. And we gather this Lord's Day to celebrate that reality that the supernatural realm penetrates the natural, that God cares what happens here, and that He will keep His promises. Messiah has come just as God promised, and we are in the place of these people anticipating that, yes, again, Messiah will come just as God has promised a second time. What should our response be to these things? It should be the same things that we see here. First of all, joy. There should be joy and rejoicing in our heart that Jesus has come. Secondly, I think should be meditation, as we've seen in the example of Mary, to contemplate these thoughts. I hope that we think of the incarnation, the coming of Christ, more than once a year. Some seasonal time. We should always be contemplating and thinking that Jesus has come. What does that mean? As I meditated on these thoughts in our service earlier this morning, 
a thought came to me that has never crossed my heart. I've never thought about before. I'd like to think about it more, but I've got to tell you a little bit, I guess. But I just, I just thought, when Christ came and took on flesh, it was permanent. I knew that. We've all thought about that a hundred times in different ways, but it just hit me. That was permanent. He Imagine the ability to be omnipresent. Imagine being able to speak the stars and the universe into existence, to know that this earth is nothing more than, in God's eyes, a speck of sand on the shores of the earth. It's just a dot in the universe. And Jesus decided to come here to be a man forever. We need to meditate on these things. And as we meditate on these things, we see in that thought, and I guess my thoughts are aiming this way because of where I want to go now, but what humility. It's one thing to go on a mission for a short time and then to come out. It would be one thing for God to send His Son to take on flesh and then to rise from the dead, never to have a physical body again, never to be seen as a man again. But Jesus is as human as you and I are human and will always be. It wasn't a short mission to take on that human flesh and then to leave it behind when His mission was over. This was something He did forever. It is an act of infinite humility to rescue us. A Savior had been born. Christ's birth initiates the redemptive process of delivering fallen humanity from the sin of pride in human power. What else can we say in light of this story, of this account? His redemption is a process, begins a process, of delivering fallen humanity from the sin of pride in human power. This event of the Christ coming is carefully calibrated to remove all any sense of human pride and human ingenuity and importance. He is born on the floor of a cattle stall to a Jewish peasant in a nation that was ruled by others. He was born to teach us to glory in God alone. He was born to call the rich to take pride in their low position and the poor to take pride in their high position. He is the God of the underdog, of the fallen, of the poor, of the lowly, of the humble. That's how He came. Not many mighty are chosen in God's plan. God chooses the weak things of the earth, the Josephs and the Marys and the shepherds to confound the wise. He chooses the poor and the outcast to stun the wealthy and the influential. He came not to a palace, but to a borrowed cattle stall. God penetrates this realm, and the way in which he penetrates this realm speaks volumes to who he is 
into how he has moved to save his people. Is there not great hope in that? He came to rescue small people. That's us. Let me make just a few more comments on one different line of thought as we close here. The secularism to which I have referred has obviously made significant inroads into our culture. But secularism is not the mortal enemy of Christianity. And I don't want to take time to go into that. I've prepared some ideas, but we'll talk about them later. It's not the mortal enemy of Christianity. Secularism cannot survive. As history has borne out over and over again. Human beings are created in the image of God. We are intrinsically spiritual beings. We all know it in our gut. And though there may be regimes that can establish secular perspective for some generations, they can never last. Secularism is not our great enemy. Every generation that has lived on this earth knows it. There's a spiritual realm. What our great enemy, I think, is today, and in our culture, we've flirted with secularism. Secularism's ideas have very much affected us. That's how we can go through a whole week without ever really talking to God as Christians. That's secularism at its height. There's no connection between the divine and the human realm. It has its influence, but what is our great enemy? Our great enemy is not secularism. Our great enemy is paganism. Because the human heart knows that there is a spiritual realm. And it will always reach to that spiritual realm in some respect. The question is, what does it find there? We need, as God's people and as defenders of the faith once delivered to the church, to grab a hold of this account and not to let go. Because when God touches this natural realm, it is, and when He penetrates it, it is in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. God is not any old God that we want to conjure up in our mind who will do our bidding as we determine He will do through our sacrifices and through our prayers. He is not the God of the pagan pluralism that is corrupting our culture. He is the God of Scripture who has come in the person of Jesus Christ. This is God. This is the only God. This is the God in whom we must believe. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God did not send a son who was like us. A celestial counterpart who just does our bidding as we pull the right strings. He sent a Savior who left the glories of heaven took on flesh, and came in the humblest of circumstances to rescue us from sin. This Savior is the Savior. And this Savior is the representative of that supernatural realm where God dwells and where we will go if we know this Savior personally and have been rescued by Him personally from our sin. Let's hold to this Savior Let's worship Him, and let's hold Him up in the midst 
of the false gods of our culture and world. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we realize that there is no way that we can even understand all of what we have discovered here today, what we've looked at, what we've considered again, as we have many, many times, most of us. And I, we struggle, Lord, to grasp it and to realize the significance of it, but I pray that you will move within our hearts to be awed, by what you have done. This was a unique night. This was a night on which the history of the universe turned. Before this conception, the sun was without body, filling all things And now, though he continues that same work and continues his omnipresent ministry in a unique way, we know that he has taken on flesh, and this is a profound mystery to us. He is in us as believers, and yet he is identifiable with a body. These mysteries reach far beyond our imaginations and our abilities to comprehend, but I pray that you will teach us to be those who meditate and think as Mary thought. We stretch, we reach, we try, we fail to comprehend it all. But it is our reminder that you are great and greatly to be praised. And I pray that we will take with us today the joy that the angels commended to the shepherds as we have come to know and to love and to serve you through Jesus Christ, the only Savior. I pray for any among us who may not know him in this way, and I pray that you will draw them to saving faith even this day. May your favor rest on them, we pray and ask in Christ's name. Amen.